This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Opioids are killing huge numbers of people and leaving others with their lives in tatters, all for something that started as a medicine prescribed to treat pain. Drug overdoses driven by opioids killed 64,000 people across the country last year, 900 in Colorado. Health reporter John Daly and CPR's Andrew Dukakis have spent the past few years delving into the issue. They're here to talk now in depth about the twists and turns of the epidemic and what state lawmakers want to do about it. The problem has gotten so bad that a bipartisan group of lawmakers started looking for solutions, and they came up with six proposals they think will help. We'll talk about those in a bit, but first, we wanted to paint a picture of how the country and Colorado got to this point and the impact it's had on folks. And John, one example of this is the parents we've interviewed who've lost a child to opioids. They told us that they had found Jonathan unresponsive in his dormitory room and that they were unable to revive him was a horrible shock. It's not something that anyone can possibly understand or even describe unless you've experienced it yourself. That was retired Admiral James Winnefeld. His son Jonathan died of an overdose of heroin laced with the drug fentanyl. He died in September at the University of Denver shortly after the admiral and his wife dropped him off for his freshman year of college. Winnefeld was also vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I guess what struck me about this um, and his story is that you can have all the influence in the world to help your kid, but that's nothing compared to the power opioids seem to have. For the big picture of how many cases like that there are now, I think one of the most jaw-dropping things I've seen was in the New York Times a few months back. It's a color-coded series of maps dating back to 1999, and it tracks the spread of overdoses year by year with the highest death rates in shades of red. And we have a link on CPR.org. Spots like Appalachia, the Southwest, Southeast Colorado get redder and redder, meaning overdose deaths are more and more rampant. Here's Robert Valick trying to put it into context. He heads a Colorado consortium for drug abuse prevention. I don't think you can overstate it. Pick a word. It's as bad as you could get. You know, there's you know, more people dying every year than died in the entire Vietnam War. A 9-11 equivalent every two and a half weeks. The numbers are just mind-boggling, and they're going up. So back to this question of how this happened, based on people I've talked to over the years and what I've read, you have a confluence of three big trends. One is changing attitudes decades ago about treating pain, both for patients and medical providers. Another is the legal side of the opioid crisis, big pharmaceutical companies creating and promoting a number of painkillers, drugs that are extremely addicting. And the other is the illegal drug trade, which, of course, is taken off, too. John, talk about that changing attitude toward treating pain and how that's led to what we see now. Well, a few decades ago, doctors were actually reluctant about prescribing too many pain pills because they worried about addiction. Then in the 90s, a new movement emerged saying you got to treat pain better, encouraging medical professionals to not just limit pain, but to try to cure it. A variety of influential groups, including patient groups, even the federal government, urged doctors to do more to treat chronic pain. And about that time, drug companies released powerful new drugs, prescription painkillers like OxyContin. They aggressively promoted the drugs and insisted they weren't addicting, and prescriptions skyrocketed. 
In 2007, Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, paid a record-breaking fine of more than $600 million for misleading claims about the potential for addiction. Still, prescription rates grew, and now more than 100 states and cities are suing the drug companies over the crisis. Colorado is not one, but it's joined with dozens of states investigating the companies. Now, the experience of one Denver resident I talked to highlights the risk of these drugs. Autumn Haggard-Wolf was prescribed prescription painkillers after back surgery, and she told me how it helped at first, but became so addicting. I didn't have no pain. I could actually wrestle with my kids and play. Before then, I couldn't do that with my kids. I would have to tell them, no, go wrestle with your dad. Mommy can't do that. Or wrestle with whoever. Mommy can't do that. And once I took those pills, like, I was, like, superwoman. Like, I felt amazing. But then when, you know, I had to have more and more and more and more and more. That's a common theme in so many stories we've heard while out reporting. So led to believe they were safe, doctors started writing more prescriptions, often in quantities that would be regarded as way too high today. Now the U.S. leads the world in opioid prescriptions by a long shot, and we have a crisis of epidemic proportions. And John, we recently had author Sam Canones on CPR, and he wrote the acclaimed book Dreamland. It's subtitled The True Tale of America's Opiate Epidemic. And he said something that stuck with me. It was about the economics of a drug crisis. He says it's excess supply, not demand, that typically ignites a drug epidemic. Only in this particular crisis, the suppliers are different. This is the first time we've had a drug scourge that did not start with supply provided by drug traffickers and mafias and street gangs, but instead by doctors and promoted by pharmaceutical companies. Right. And he talks about how prescription drugs came first and then much of the illegal trade entered the picture afterwards, right? Yeah. And he has this fascinating backstory about one small town in Mexico called Jalisco. Back in the 1990s, it found a way to capitalize on this country's addiction to prescription drugs. And it did that by bringing in a cheap, easy-to-get alternative, which is black tar heroin. So you had a lot of users who switched to heroin or would switch back and forth between drugs. The town of Jalisco and a few others nearby focused their market on small and medium-sized cities in the U.S., including Denver. They'd send their young men into these cities to sell heroin, and it became a coveted job. Increasingly, as time went on, they began to see others like them coming up to sell heroin, drive heroin around a certain city, and come back with money, money enough to buy land, money enough to buy a house or a truck, uh, money enough to interest a girl in marrying them. They were not in it to become the next Scarface. They were in it to simply move ahead into some form of the middle class, and they saw heroin as allowing them to accomplish that. And in cities like Denver, Canona said they had something like a pizza delivery system. They There would be a phone operator who would stay in an apartment all day, and four or five guys would drive around a city. Buyers would call in. The operator would dispatch a member of the crew to deliver the drugs. So the combination of these pain meds that you talked about and new heroin coming into the country was just lethal. Yeah, exactly. And for the woman in recovery, you heard from earlier, pain pills eventually did lead to heroin. Autumn Haggard-Wolf says she's seeing a lot more people using drugs everywhere. She describes most of them like a 17-year-old relative now bad into heroin, starting with prescription drugs. I don't know one person that just went straight to heroin. It's all from pain pills first. 
and a lot of them for for medical reasons or they just wanted to get high to be honest the young kids you know they see all everybody else doing it and so they did it and as we've reported the vast majority of these addictions start not with drugs from the street but taken from a medicine cabinet Right. Another example of the impact this has had is that lots of babies are being born addicted in the state. Hmm. We interviewed a nurse at a hospital in Pueblo last spring who put a call out for baby cuddlers. These were volunteers to come into the nursery to hold opioid-addicted babies. These babies especially are going through a rough time. They come into the world addicted, and they go through all of the same physical withdrawal symptoms that an adult would. So these babies can go from just, you know, maybe yawning quite a bit, being a little bit fussy, a little bit jittery, to the point of having convulsions. They can have a very high-pitched, inconsolable cry. And no part of the state is free of this. I visited the rural San Luis Valley in southern Colorado. It's poor. There aren't a lot of jobs. And you have whole towns that have just been devastated by this. Rural areas have this unique problem, too. Um, If folks do want to get off opioids, they usually need to find a methadone clinic to treat them or a doctor who will prescribe a drug like Suboxone. And these are medications that help users transition from drugs like OxyContin and heroin with fewer withdrawal symptoms, right? Right. And some stay on these alternative drugs forever and some eventually get off them. But there just aren't enough people in the area licensed to prescribe the drugs. Dr. Barbara Troy practices in Alamosa, and she is the only doctor in the entire San Luis Valley who can prescribe Suboxone. I went to her office one day, and and to watch her, she's almost like a whirling dervish. She'll run into one room, check up on one patient dealing with addiction, and then run into another to check on a different patient. Uh, I sat in on a checkup Dr. Troy gave a woman who had a 10-month-old baby with her. The woman had been using heroin, and Troy was treating her with Suboxone. Dr. Troy told me the mom had been doing really well, uh, but these checkups always include a urine test to see if a patient has relapsed. Troy left the room to get the results, and when she came back, she told the patient she had to return in a week. Usually you were doing two weeks. Was there something wrong? Yes. Well... You're positive for opiates? I was? Yeah. I shouldn't be. Okay. Dr. Troy says she's come to expect that people are going to relapse, and she says it's her job to keep the conversation going with the patient and to make sure she's really monitoring them closely. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. I'm with CPR's health reporter, John Daly. And we're talking about the state's opioid crisis. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has spent months developing a plan of attack. They've come up with a half dozen bills. And, John, one of the bills could be a big change for the medical community. It puts a limit on prescribing. Yeah, exactly. I think it's fair to say there's been a sea change in attitudes about prescribing in the medical community. It's the over-prescribing advocates, providers, and lawmakers would like to rein in. Consider this story from a man from Federal Heights I spoke to. Robert Curley had hurt his back at work and was given a series of opioids for the pain. Eventually, Curley had a doctor routinely prescribing him increasing doses of opioids, even after it seemed clear he'd become addicted. He would just prescribe me the medicine right there. I'd go in and see him, and he would just give me whatever I asked for or whatever I needed. He would just prescribe it to me, and I'd go. 
Curley later kicked the addiction, but he says that doctor might give him a month's worth of pills at a time. Research shows a person is much more likely to keep using prescription pills if they're given more than a few days supply on the first prescription. One of these new proposals takes several steps that aim to prevent that. It would limit an initial prescription for opioid painkillers to seven days for most patients. There would be exceptions for chronic pain and cancer. And then the doctor could also make a specific request for an additional seven days. And I understand doctors could soon get their own prescription scorecards or report cards. Right. This is a new innovation. It would be a pilot program. A state report would give providers a summary of their own history writing prescriptions and how they rank with others in their specialty regarding types of drugs and dosages. The hope is that there would be some peer pressure that would change prescriber behavior. And I have to say, I have heard concerns about a backlash that all of this control over prescriptions could make it tougher for people who legitimately need them for pain. And John, we should say doctors have already begun pulling back on their own prescribing, even without a law telling them to do it. We talked to an emergency room doctor at Swedish Hospital in Englewood who says he had an epiphany one day when he met a patient who had almost died from a heroin overdose. Her addiction started when she was prescribed painkillers for a sprained ankle. She got hooked on them and then switched to heroin. And this doctor realized that the same morning he had prescribed opioids to a another patient with a sprained ankle. So he realized he was contributing to the problem, and he started trying to prescribe less and come up with alternatives. Just like a lot of our patients who are addicted to heroin get into recovery, I, I myself say that I'm in recovery from being an opioid overprescriber as a physician. And that doctor, Dr. Donald Stater, is a key organizer of a pilot program to get doctors to prescribe fewer opioids and use alternatives like topical therapies and prescription muscle relaxants. The concern, though, is that these tighter controls on prescriptions will push more people to use heroin at a time when heroin overdoses are rising rapidly. And actually, one proposal aims to specifically address this, right? This would be a bipartisan bill to open a pilot center in Denver where people can inject drugs like heroin on site with professionals around. These so-called supervised injection sites are uh, available in some other countries. They often look more like a health clinic where booths are there and people can inject with clean needles. Right now, they aren't allowed in Colorado. Instead, the state has places where users can dispose of dirty needles and pick up clean ones. Lisa Rayville heads up one of these, the Harm Reduction Center, right in the shadow of the state capitol. Right now, you know, we can give them everything that they need to prevent and eliminate the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C. And then essentially, we send them out to go to an alley six blocks away to inject. Right. Um, so we want to take injecting out of the public sphere and put it into a controlled environment. And at these supervised injection sites, there would also be someone there if a client overdoses to give them the overdose reversing drug naloxone. But some folks don't like the idea. They say you're enabling people to inject heroin and that the state shouldn't be sanctioning the use of illegal drugs. And, John, you heard some news that this bill may be ill-fated anyway. Yeah, this is definitely the most controversial of these proposals. And, in fact, it's already been assigned to a committee that's nearly certain to vote it down, so it very likely won't go anywhere this session. 
I should mention there's another bill that tries to get to this issue of too few providers in certain pockets of the state that have been hard hit by addiction. It would help reimburse school loans for addiction professionals willing to work in areas like the San Luis Valley. And there are a couple of other bills of the six that we should mention. There's a bill to increase opioid prevention and education efforts. It's not controversial, but would uh, devote money in the millions. So that could be a sticking point. Then there's a pair of bills that deal with the critical issue of the economics of fighting the opioid crisis. One deals with payment reform, removing barriers for insurers paying for medication-assisted treatment and alternative therapies like physical therapy. The other has to do with Medicaid. It would ask the feds to let Medicaid pay for residential opioid and addiction treatment. This would cost an estimated $34 million to state taxpayers the first year, and it's estimated it would treat 17,000 more people. It's estimated also that that would save money, too, because there would be 7,600 fewer emergency room visits and 1,700 fewer hospitalizations. And this money side of it is critical right now. There's a big treatment gap, and particularly since the state's largest treatment provider closed earlier this month. Exactly. Bottom line, all this is a comprehensive effort to tackle a huge, huge problem. Robert Valick, the head of the state's Drug Prevention Consortium, who we heard from earlier, uh, he likened it to spackle. Uh, the stuff you put on the wall when you're painting, there are a bunch of cracks in the wall, major gaps, and these measures aim to fill the gaps. But clearly, there's so much more to be done, so many more substantial fixes that uh, really are required. So we'll see a lot of potential legislative action to try to attack this problem. Of course, we'll be covering the progress of these bills and exploring them further. You can go to our website to get more details, CPR.org. I'm Andrew Dukakis, along with CPR's health reporter, John Daly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. President Trump wants to send Americans back to the moon. It's a change of policy from the Obama administration, which had set its sights on Mars. What does the pivot to the moon mean for Colorado and for space science? Well, I'm joined by Doug Duncan, director emeritus of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder and our regular space expert. Doug, welcome back. Hi, Nathan. Good to be back. Now, this isn't the first time a new administration has changed the country's direction in space. President George W. Bush said in 2004, we should return to the moon, something his father had also wanted to do. President Obama said, let's skip the moon and go right to Mars. And now President Trump's Space Policy Directive 1, signed last month, redirects NASA back to the moon. Do Republicans like the moon and Democrats like Mars? I mean, what's going on here? (laughs) Well, I don't think it's really a political thing for the scientists. You know, we don't care about the politics of the other scientists we work with any more than, uh, you know, a receiver on the Broncos cares about the politics of the quarterback. (laughs) They kind of care whether the pass is good, right? 
And so scientists care about whether the science is good. And there actually are really good scientific reasons for going both to the moon and Mars. This is a pretty hard decision to make. But some people say, we've already been to the moon. You, you, you know we've been there. Why go back? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, we've discovered all kinds of cool stuff on the moon. I think the most interesting is that the moon was once part of the Earth. Okay, from the moon rocks, we have figured out that a giant impact, something the size of Mars, smashed into the Earth, scattered debris all over, that gathered together, and the moon is made out of Earth stuff, which is pretty remarkable. But we learned all that in a very limited uh, exploration. Uh, The astronauts walked an area less than, you know, downtown Denver when they had their moon buggy. Most people don't know. They drove it six miles an hour for four hours. So imagine you were exploring the whole Earth and you got to drive for four hours, top speed, six miles an hour. There'd be a lot you'd miss. So I think there are a lot of really interesting things still to be found on the moon. But what does this mean for research and projects in progress in terms of going to Mars? I mean, in particular, I'm thinking about the Orion spacecraft, which was to be the vehicle to take astronauts to deep space, including Mars. Um, Multiple Colorado companies are working on this. Orion, Lockheed Martin in Littleton, uh, Enersys in Longmont, Seeker Engineering in, in Centennial. Well, it's a really big difference going to the moon and going to Mars. Going to Mars is probably six months out. And six months back, whereas going to the moon is three or four days. And among other things, the response of the human body for, uh, for half a year or a year in space is a pretty big unknown. I mean, we sent the astronaut Scott Kelly, and he has a really fascinating book out on the subject of his year in space. And when he spent a year in space, even though he's a pretty uh, fit guy, it was very, very tough. When he came back to the Earth, it's, it's kind of dangerous. There's a lot of radiation out there in space. And so, you know, how much does it increase your cancer risk? So to me, I kind of like to take things one step at a time. And the step of living on the moon would allow people to be in space for months and months. And yet they're close enough that they're not, you know, completely out there the way they are at Mars. So does that mean that maybe projects like Orion could be scrapped, or could you take Orion to the moon? Oh, not only can you, but they're going to. I see. Here's a surprise. Uh, Well, unless you follow the scheduling. Uh, In about two years, they're going to send, at least the current plans for NASA, are to send the Orion spacecraft on 25-day mission past the moon. So it'll go around the moon, kind of be slung by the moon's gravity a little farther out into space, come back and then return to the Earth in just about two years. That won't have any astronauts on board. You know, it'd be kind of nice if it did, but the conservative approach is to send the spacecraft first. We got enough automation in it, see if it all works out, and then put astronauts on board. NASA is very, very careful. Some people would say too careful. Well, what do you mean by that? Because I know that you, I've heard you mention that you know failure is something that happens in science, and it's okay to do that. It's okay to learn from that. But it seems NASA may be a little bit um, cautious about uh, sending. It's, it's way, way cautious, and that's a big issue. I'm on a NASA committee, and we've argued for um, taking some more risk. You know, we live in Colorado, and stop and think about this. If people didn't take risks, we wouldn't be here broadcasting today, right? Because Colorado never would have had people come from the east. So exploration is dangerous. Probably worth remembering that with all of NASA's care, 
two of the space shuttles crashed and killed the people on board. If you talk to astronauts, and I have several friends who fly in space, they know the risk. Um, and I think it's very good that there are private companies like SpaceX, which are um, younger than NASA, less conservative than NASA. And the combination of the two, I'm really hoping, are going to get us further in space. Well, let us get back to the, the, the reason of why we, we go to the moon. I mean, what are some of the advantages here of establishing a base on the moon? I know there's ice on the moon, so maybe a water source there, right? Um, you know, there have been some good discoveries. The um, poles of the moon st- either stick up if you're on a mountain so you get days and days and days of sunlight or are in perpetual darkness if you're a crater uh, at the poles of the moon. And apparently water and ice, I mean, gradually collect in the depths of these craters. So if you could find a place, uh, I mean, ideally what you want, water is great to drink. You separate the hydrogen and oxygen and you get oxygen to breathe and you put the hydrogen into fuel for rockets Um, It might be a lot of work building a moon base, but kind of an exciting recent discovery is a big dark hole in the moon that's been seen from orbit. And there's currently debate, as I understand it, whether that hole is just a hole or maybe it could be a lava tube. Lava tubes. There was lava on Mars? Uh, there's lots of lava on the moon okay. because if you just or take on a the pair, moon, rather, yeah. sure. If you take a <laughs> pair of binoculars, even, and you look at the moon, some of it is smooth and some of it is cratered, yeah. and the smooth part, the smooth part, excuse me, is lava flows. Those are younger than the rest of the moon because the craters come in, and the longer a surface is on the moon, the more and more and more craters it gets. So uh, you might get a smile out of the fact that astronomers tell how old different parts of a planet is by the number of craters. Okay, so the smooth part of the moon is lava. And I've been in lava tubes in Hawaii. You know, the lava flows and it cools on the outside and the inside is still hot and keeps flowing. So if you could get an empty lava tube on the moon, that'd probably be a pretty good place to live. Oh. Because it's already, you know, you don't have to build everything. It's like a moon base in the tube. In the tube, right. So we're kind of hoping that will turn out to be true. It requires further investigation. And, of course, the, the, the roof of the tube will protect you from cosmic radiation, lessen the risk of cancer or something like that. So if you could have a lava tube and an icy part with a source of, of water and fuel and so forth, you'd have the perfect place on the moon. Pretty prime place to set up Prime shop. real estate on the moon. Absolutely. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Doug Duncan, Director Emeritus of the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, and our regular space expert about the U.S. goal of going back to the moon. Uh, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the, the companies, space companies like, like uh, SpaceX and things like that, going to the moon. How important are they going to be to get us actually to the moon? I think they're going to be pretty critical. You know, I, I'm not a, a management expert. I don't know how to deal with the problem that once your organization gets big and old, mm-hmm. almost everyone gets more conservative. It's not just NASA, and it's not just the government. You know, even the car companies in America got more and more conservative. And then all of a sudden when they got outside competition, they became more efficient, better. You got more for your dollar. 
And I'm fully expecting that one of the big impacts of Elon Musk and SpaceX and some of the other companies, even ones in Colorado, that uh, started up uh, as private entities, I hope it's also going to cause NASA to be uh, more efficient and get us farther in space faster. Elon Musk wants to personally, you know, see us get to Mars. And uh, I think the presence of the private space business, I think it's a plus for Colorado and it's certainly a plus for the country. But but earlier this month, a SpaceX rocket failed to put the Zuma spy satellite into orbit. It's unclear whose fault that was. But lawmakers are expressing wariness about actually putting astronauts on board a SpaceX rocket. What kind of risk will NASA need to be willing to take if these private-public partnerships are going to work? Will they be able to go, okay, well, we're going to have to accept some of this risk? Well, I would say to those politicians and leaders that it's their job to make the case that exploration is exploration. And so, like I said earlier in the program, especially in Colorado, we wouldn't be here if people weren't willing to explore the United States. And the people who are personally involved, I can speak from personal experience, the astronauts who are involved, they know that there's a risk. It's a significant risk, but they're willing to take it if the rewards justify it. And so, you know, I'm not talking about any random mission, but I'm talking about the missions that will lead us out into the solar system. The astronauts are on board. I want to turn briefly to other Colorado space research. Uh, Julie Comerford, professor of astrophysics at CU in Boulder, has released a new study on black holes. And she says black holes are snacking on gas and then burping. So what I mean by burping is that if you have a, a black hole and gas gets gravitationally pulled near it, that gas swirls around the black hole at very high velocities and gets heated up. Um, and then some of the gas falls into the black hole. But then some of the energy also goes into pushing away some of the gas. Comerford spotted one of these burps or expelled gas from a black hole 800 million light years away. But she also noticed something else, another burp. And one of the outbursts has moved really far away from the black hole. It's uh, 30,000 light years away now. Whereas the other outburst is only 3,000 light years away from the black hole. And so we know from the different sizes of the two outbursts that they happened at different times. They actually happened uh, separated by 100,000 years. And so what that tells us is how black holes consume gas, that it's not a continuous process, that it comes in these episodic bursts of, of eating and then having an outburst and then taking a break for 100,000 years. A black hole that's feeding and burping every 100,000 years is pretty active in, in the cosmic sense. Uh, what, what is the reason for that? Well, it's interesting. You can't see anything that is inside a black hole, of course. But as gas swirls around the black hole in the process of falling into it, it heats up. It gives off x-rays, for instance, and that's how we detect the black holes. But think how interesting it is. If black holes only do this every once in a while, it means there's a lot of black holes out there that are quiet right now, and we haven't found them. So if black holes are episodic, there could be quiescent black holes lurking in many different places, in many different galaxies, more than we might have previously realized. We love black holes. Almost everybody does. Doug, thanks so much for being here. Always a pleasure. My guest today was Doug Duncan, Director Emeritus at Boulder's Fisk Planetarium, who joins us monthly to talk about space science.
50 years ago, Dick Durrance of Carbondale was in Vietnam with the U.S. Army, but instead of an M16 rifle, he had a Nikon camera. One of his photos shows a pair of battered boots drying on some sandbags. Wounded Vietnam veteran Ron Kovic, whose autobiography is born on the 4th of July, wrote these unpolished boots were the boots of war. They still look familiar to me, and I guess they always will. Not long after I was released from the hospital, I went into a sporting goods store in my hometown, and I remember seeing the boots in the photograph for sale. They were clean and brand new, neatly polished. I was angry. How could anyone now buy the boots we had worn in the war? The boots that Sergeant Bodiger had worn the day he was blown apart by an artillery shell. The boots I wore the day I was paralyzed, from the mid-chest down. I thought of buying a pair that day, and even asked one of the clerks if he would take them down from the shelf so I could look at them. And I held them in my hands, thinking thoughts and feeling things I knew no one in the store could ever understand. Durrance agrees. He says words and images can't convey much of what combat is like, which is true of all wars. His 1988 book, Where War Lives, a photographic journal of Vietnam, gives us a look into the experiences of the soldiers and the civilians whose lives were forever changed by the Vietnam War. Dick, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. You shot photos across Vietnam from the jungles to the cities. Can you tell us about the first firefight you photographed? Yeah. The first firefight that I went to photograph was about 35 miles northwest of Saigon, near uh, near the headquarters for the Viet Cong in the south. So there were tons of tunnels up there. It was a very difficult place. And I went up to photograph uh, the the guys trying to root the, the Viet Cong out of there. And they'd been there for, oh, a week. It'd been brutal fighting because the whole area, it was interlaced with tunnels. Uh, so they could get down from below the fire strike, uh, the air strikes, and and from the the, the boom from the big cannons uh, on the tanks, uh, and that the the first impression I had of the fighting was how loud it was. I mean, there was the boom of those big cannons, the rat tat 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 of the machine guns on the tanks, and the M16s banging away. You know, it was deafening as I as I as I dashed back and forth, zigzagging through the debris trying to take pictures, uh, you know, darting from tree to tree, taking shelter where I could find it. Did, did you ever, were you ever, did you think you were in danger? I mean, of course, you're in a firefight, but you're shooting these photographs. And I mean, did you ever think like, whoa, I'm in, I'm in it right now? Well, I'll tell you what, during that first firefight, I was so focused on photographing, I did not think about the danger really? until all of a sudden a guy to my left got hit. Bang, down he went. And I said, Jesus Christ, wake up, Dick, wake up. Uh, you're not playing soldier with Don Neal Stapleton and with Danny Glidden. This is real stuff. Pay attention. Did you carry a weapon along with your camera? I tried on, uh, early on. I tried carrying an M16, but it was just I just kept getting tangled up in it. Uh, I was there to photograph. I carried a forty-five. Um and uh, but no, I, I I was there to photograph, and that's what I did. So were there other soldiers looking out for you then? They were that day, and I just I just learned this the other day. I I recently posted a video of my TEDx talk that I gave on Veterans Day last fall, hmm. uh, on the on the TEDx uh, Mile High site, and uh, one of the guys who was in that firefight recognized the pictures and and told me about the fact that. Um, 
that uh, I was so focused on photographing the fighting. I didn't really, and I didn't have any comms. You know, I wasn't plugged into their radios. Hmm. They got orders to pull back uh, to make way for an airstrike. And I, of course, didn't get the word. So I'm sitting there, you know, scampering here and there, taking pictures. And they suddenly, they pulled back and then they saw me and they came running back in, uh, you know, roaring back in in their, in their track, picked me up and took me back out of there. Uh, so they saved my life. The book's cover shows a young soldier on a small military boat. His sleeves are rolled up, looking directly into the camera, very serious and, and quiet. Can you describe this guy's situation for us? Yeah. Uh, I was uh, photographing a, a river patrol down in the Mekong Delta. Uh, and I was on a boat called a Monitor, which was a f- pretty heavily armored river boat. Hmm. Um, and we were patrolling the canals, going up and down canals all day, scanning the shore, constantly looking for enemy soldiers lurking in those trees, just waiting to blow us out of the water. We felt like sitting ducks. And that's a terrible frightening feeling. Well, I did it for a day and I was rattled. Those guys did it for a year and you can't help wondering what did that do to their minds? We've posted that photo and others at at CPR.org. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with photographer Dick Durrance of Carbondale about the photos he shot in Vietnam during the war 50 years ago. Now, Dick, you were already working as a photographer when you were drafted into the Army in 1966, and many of the photos in your book were shot when you were going through boot camp. How did you manage to get permission to to shoot photographs in boot camp? (laughs) Uh, So when we uh, were – once we'd gotten our uniforms and our haircuts in shops, they trucked us to the barracks where we would – you know, where our – we would become a squad, yeah. go through basic training. And so I was photographing as the guys jumped off the truck. And I heard this voice yell at me, hey, you, yeah, you with the camera. What in the hell are you doing over there? Get over here. I came over. And I, yes, sir. My name is Durant, sir. I'm a, I was a photographer before I was drafted, sir. And I'd like to photograph basic training as we go through it. It'd be a terrific story. And as far as I know, nobody's ever done it. Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, Well, soldier, and just where were you a professional photographer? Well, sir, my last story was for National Geographic magazine. (laughs) Where's it sad to tell him? It was my first story. (laughs) (laughs) Two summers before, I had done a canoe trip down the Danube River with college uh, friends of mine, and, and it had been published in National Geographic. So he essentially said, you can go oh, so, ahead oh, I'm and sorry, do this, yeah. and, right? And, and so he said, well, that's really interesting, soldier. That's interesting. Uh, he looked at his watch and said, meet me at my office, 1,300 hours. Oh. So I met him there, and he thought about it. And he says, yeah, let's try it. Now, you got to do everything the soldiers do, but, if you, uh, you know, but you can step out of formations to shoot pictures, but you got to get back in and get back in step. Well, I I manage that almost every time. <laughs> now, now, did shooting photos kind of let you off the hook? Or were, were there more scrutiny put on you by by some of the guys that that you were with? Uh, there was there was actually more scrutiny. And and one of the times when I did not get back in step, I was sitting there struggling to get get it worked out. Yeah. And wham! One of the sergeants had banged me on the head with the little batons they carried. I mean, it was it didn't hurt. It just 
<laughs> surprised you, I'm assuming. Scared, <laughs> scared the bejesus out of me. <laughs> but, they, you know, they knew they had to maintain their discipline and they couldn't let me get away with stuff. But they basically let me, let me do it. Uh, and, it, I mean, it's just amazing. If I, if I could sell like that now, I'd be rich. I'm not rich. But it seems like you would have been an easy choice to be an official photographer for the Army, but that really wasn't the case. So uh, your father, uh, Dick Durrance, who you're named after, is a famous skier. He pulled some strings to get you sent to this Army's special photographic office in Hawaii. What happened when you got to Hawaii? Um, well, you know, we all make mistakes. Mm. And when, when I arrived there, I made probably the biggest mistake I've made, had made before then or since the, 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 the driver, uh, the company clerk picked me up at the airport and drove me to Fort Shafter and we got to the, where the office was. We went upstairs and walked in. I dropped my duffel bag and Sergeant Bridgem, uh, said, welcome Durrance here, type this. Well, I'm a bright college boy. I knew what he was trying to do. So I sat down at the typewriter and I went plunk, 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 plunk. He looked at me. No, he glared at me and he said, come on, Durrance, college boy like you, you can type. And I said the stupidest thing I've ever said in my life. Plunk. No, Sergeant, I always paid somebody to do it. <laughs> I knew I was toast, and I was toast. I was in typing school the next day for 10 weeks typing. <laughs> and he, he knew I could type, you know, so I'd just go over there, and I'd go in. They, she put me in this, another room where I could just bang away at the keyboard. But in the meantime, I, I spent the rest of my days photographing, and I would show Sergeant Bridgham the pictures, and he finally, you know, he'd, he'd, He'd done what he, and I would have done the same thing if I were him. He'd punished me. And so then he sent me to uh, Vietnam with one of the teams. And I, I, I was lucky enough to shoot the most, uh, the, the, what was selected as the best picture taken in the Army that quarter. And thus my clerk typing career came to an end. And, and the photos you shoot are, are, are realistic. Some of them are haunting. Some of them are, are terrifying. Have you ever returned to Vietnam and, and, and kind of relived what, what you saw back then? I have not. I, I, I went from the Army straight to National Geographic, and I spent years traveling the world as a National Geographic photographer. So I'd seen, you know, I've traveled enough for one lifetime. I, I really have no urge just to go see exotic places. I've seen them. I, I kind of enjoy being home. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, and also... You know, my experience has nothing to do with Vietnam that was there. I was there. I traveled in sort of in army pathways, in combat situations. I, I, you know, it was a totally different experience. And, and going now and, and just looking at pieces of jungle that I might have walked through, it, 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 you know, for me, it's not a necessary journey. It would have been with Americans and you were with Americans, not this sense of the Vietnamese oh, jungle. Th- oh, that's right. I, yeah. I, I virtually had zero contact with any Vietnamese, which is too bad. Um, but but that's, that's essentially the case. What prompted you to put the, the book together in 1988, you know, nearly 20 years after returning yeah. from the war? Yeah. Well, when I got out, which was 1968, you know, that was the height of the, of the protests against the army. There was nobody's interest in the pictures I had that told, you know, that were, an, were a soldier's story. Uh, and so I put them away. And, and, and I took off and I just was going around and around the world for National Geographic. So 
uh, I just kind of forgot about him. And then I went to see Platoon. And I walked out of that movie and I, I knew the time had come to go back to those pictures. Of course, it took me a week to find the bloody negatives. Um, but I found them and I started printing and I realized, my goodness, this, this could be a book. And so I took it to, I printed up about 75 prints and I took it around to five publishers and all five wanted to do the book and ended up doing it with, uh, with Farrar Strauss and it came out as the book, Where and, War Lives. And really briefly, what do you hope people will see and will feel when they look at your photos? What I hope they take away is a, is a fuller understanding of what soldiers go through when they're being trained to fight, when they're sent into battle, and when they come home. Um, because, you know, now, because we don't have a draft, only one half of 1% of the American people serve in the military. So most people have no idea what soldiers go through or how it affects them. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Carbondale photographer Dick Durrance. His book is called Where War Lives, a photographic journal of Vietnam. We've posted his recent TED Talk and photos at CPR.org. Finally, today, the Catch a Calf contest has been a national Western stock show tradition since 1935. During the rodeos, young contestants are set out in the ring to wrangle a calf, and those who catch one are later sponsored to receive a market steer, which they'll ready to bring back the following year. Last May, after catching a calf during the 2017 stock show, 17-year-old Alexa Haggins was matched with Ernie. He was a 748-pound steer, and that was pretty intimidating for me. And when I got him into the barn, threw a halter on him, and then walked him out of the barn, he would take off. And I just—I was very amazed with myself that I was able to handle being thrown around by a 748-pound steer. But the two quickly became inseparable, and Alexa learned that raising him would be an all-consuming responsibility. He bloated on me every day for probably two to three months, and... It didn't matter what time of the day it was, whether it was midnight or four in the morning, I'd have to come out here, walk him around, burp him a little bit. It's basically like taking care of a baby, just bigger. Much, much bigger. Ernie grew to more than 1,400 pounds. Alexa spent the rest of 2017 getting him ready for this year's stock show, grooming and training him. The day of the live showing can be really nerve-wracking for contestants and extremely competitive. Alexa was one of 36 kids this year, competing for only two prize-winning positions. So how did Alexa and Ernie fare? CPR's Rachel Ramberg was with them that day. Alexa did very well. She, in her division for showmanship, placed third. And she also placed in the other honorable mention categories, such as the interview. She placed in that For the market show portion, Ernie placed first in his weight class, so he got grand champion for his weight class. However, since Ernie's overall score wasn't high enough to win the competition, it came time for Alexa and her steer to part ways. They know when they take on the Ketchikaf program that National Western is a terminal show, so they know the fate of their animal down the road. But when the time comes to actually put their animal from the arena into the pen, that's when you can see the reality um, set in. And some kids handle it pretty well. Some kids, you know, are 
of course, pretty sad by it. And Alexa was sad to say goodbye to Ernie. You can see a video of Alexa talking about her experience with raising Ernie and the emotional challenge of saying goodbye at the program's end at CPR.org. The National Western Stock Show wraps up this weekend.